0: All right, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 3. If you were with us last week, you know that I used a movie analogy to kind of introduce the last part of Luke chapter 2. That um, really the last verses of Luke chapter 2 are the movie equivalent of a montage, you know, where you take a a bunch of different scenes and you mash them together to cover a long period of time in a short uh, economy of space. And we saw that at the end of Luke chapter 2, where <clears throat> 12 years of Jesus' life are compressed into 13 verses. Well, as we come now to chapter 3, the story fast-forwards 17 years from where we left off, and, uh, and again, using a movie analogy, if Luke chapter 3 was a movie, then the first three verses of Luke chapter 3 would be what's known as the establishing shot. Uh, The establishing shot is the first shot of a new scene where action is taking place, and it it establishes where that action is taking place. Think of it this way. You watch Brady Bunch, and they're going to do a scene in the kitchen, but before they do a scene in the kitchen, what do they do? They show you the exterior of the house, right? That's the establishing shot so you understand the context in which the next scene is going to take place. You go, oh, this is going to happen inside the Brady house. Well, that's what we're going to see here that the Luke chapter 3 begins establishing where the action is taking place and specifically we're going to see that the action is taking place where it's taking place politically as well as where it's taking place spiritually. So Luke chapter 3 verse 1 now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being Tetriarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetriarch of Ituria, uh, of and the region of tonsilitus, and uh, Asanias, Tetriarch of Abilene, uh, while Annas, uh, Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So again, Luke begins this section, he's establishing where the action is taking place politically and religiously. And so what we see politically starts off with Tiberius, who was the Roman emperor of the time, and so he, politically that 's who he was, and he was known as being a very cruel ruler, and then it tells us Pontius Pilate was the political uh, Roman governor of Jerusalem, and uh, Pontius Pilate was was known. To really hate the Jews, which is kind of an interesting place that he should be the Roman governor of Jerusalem, right? But he he is uh, himself a cruel ruler. As well, it mentions Herod and Philip and uh, Lysanias. Now, these three men were the sons of Herod the Great. And uh, you might remember Herod the Great, he, he, Herod the Great is the guy that... Um, Uh, There, he's, you know, in power and and he's the guy that uh, was hated by the Jews because he was a puppet of Rome, right? And uh, he was a guy who would kill his wife to jealously, he jealously guarded his power. So he would kill his wife because of that, killed his wife's mom. He killed three of his kids, uh, of his own sons, because he was jealously guarding uh, his power, the Roman Emperor Augustus said of Herod that it would be safer to be Herod's pig than his son. So this is a, he's a bad dude. And ultimately, three of his sons, Herod II, mentioned here, Philip and Licinius, would survive Herod. (coughs) But like their father, they were themselves also wicked rulers. So that's the political climate. It's corrupt and it's cruel, and sadly... So was the religious climate. This is established in verse 2, where Luke mentions Caiaphas and Annas. And Caiaphas and Annas, they were the religious leaders of Judea during this period of time. They were both very corrupt, and they were more interested in power politics than they were in serving God and really being a a true religious leader. Caiaphas was actually the high priest, um, but his father-in-law Annas held the real power. It was kind of the power behind the the position. And together, again, they're supposed to represent God, but instead they represented wickedness. And so what we see here in these opening verses is that this is a time of great political unrest and strife, uh, but it's also a time of spiritual immorality and compromise. And so just sort of a bad deal spiritually and politically. Well, Proverbs 29 tells us that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. And that's the climate here. That's the shot that's been established, is that it's into this groaning world that God now sends John the Baptist, having grown into adulthood, to preach a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, it says there in verse 3, he was preaching this baptism of repentance. And if you're given to notes, you could circle that word preaching. Nearby, you could write this. You could write, to herald with authority. And that's what he was doing. He was heralding with authority. And what this verse has in mind is that uh, he's evangelistically preaching. Now, um, whenever you preach the gospel, there's, there's good news and there's bad news right the good news of course is that jesus came to save us from our sins the word gospel actually means good news but there's good news if you have good news you also have bad news the good news is jesus came to save us from our sins this was the essence of john's message if you read in the the apostle john in the gospel of john he writes about john the baptist and what john the baptist proclaimed in his message and in john 129 john the baptist Pointing to Jesus, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Again, that's the good news that he came to preach. But when you preach the gospel, you're also preaching bad news. And the bad news is this that unless we repent, we will all die in our sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have the good news and the bad news. The bad news, the wages of sin is death good news is Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sin. And so John comes and he's preaching a baptism of repentance, which is kind of a curious statement. Baptism of repentance, what does that really mean? Well, understand, first of all, baptism. Baptism wasn't new to the Jews in John's day. It was a common practice that uh, the, the religious Jews would baptize Gentile converts to to Judaism. Um, they did this all the time. As, as well, when the Jews would come to the temple to worship, they, they had what was known as a mikvah. And a mikvah was, was just these, these water baths that were outside the temple, and the Jews would come, and they would wash themselves. And by washing themselves, it served as a symbolic representation of their hearts. In other words, what what would happen is they would come to this water, to this mikvah, and they would immerse themselves in the water, and it was symbolic of cleansing their hearts so that they would come before the Lord with uh, just being holy and pure. Uh, But the problem with this ritual is that it eventually just became another routine in their life. And the, the, what happened was that the ceremony replaced the substance of their hearts. And and what they did, in other words, is they compartmentalized their faith. They compartmentalized their faith. They would go up, they'd wash themselves at the temple, they'd make their prayers, they'd make their sacrifices, they'd make their offerings, but it didn't make it into their hearts. They, they would go to the worship service, but the worship service wouldn't make its way into their week and therein lies the first point of application for us today in our text that we really seriously need to take a walk with this and ask ourselves the question am I living a compartmentalized life where my faith is concerned that 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 maybe does 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 my worship of God On Sunday, come to church, go through all the the process, getting the kids ready, running the gauntlet up in the children's ministry, get them checked in, get here, go through the services, worship God in our singing and in our giving, and then study His Word. Wonderful. Great. Does it make its way into your week? Do you live a life of worship throughout the week? And this is something we, we seriously need to take a walk with because a person who's living a compartmentalized life comes to church on Sunday, checks the to-do list done in their Franklin planner. Yes, I went to church, but then what happens is Monday through Saturday, their life has no reflection of the the truths that they so so willingly embraced on Sunday. And so we need to take a walk with that and say, Is that me? Do I have a compartmentalized faith? And so we see John the Baptist, he comes on the scene, and what he says, in effect, is look, what you guys are doing is not going to cut it. You can mikvah till the cows come home, and, and, and if, it's, if, if there's no real fundamental change in how you live in your life, then it's unacceptable to God. What's needed is a baptism of repentance. Now, that phrase repentance, it means to turn. Um, and some think of this in terms of, you know, emotionalism, of your feelings, like, oh, I feel bad because I sinned. And that's good. You should. You know, Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. This is one of the roles that God said the Holy Spirit would, would play in our lives. And so, so we should have those feelings, but some people think that that's as far as repentance go, that I just feel sorry for my sin. I think it's a great start, but true repentance goes beyond our feelings to our actions, makes it from our hearts and from our minds into our hands and our feet in the way that we live out our faith. This is where we, true repentance is where we make a change of mind resulting in a change of direction. Change of mind and a change of direction. But listen, that still doesn't fully explain it. Because if you think about repentance and you go, okay, I understand it's a change of mind and a change of, re, of direction, How is that so different than having the attitude of, I'm going to do good and try harder? I'll I'll illustrate what I'm trying to say this way. What are we, two weeks into the new year? And here's what I know statistically. I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands. But how many of you made a New Year's resolution and you've already broken it? Right? And and so you're like, well, wait a minute. Isn't that kind of like what we're talking about? A change of mind and a change of direction? Listen, the reason that we can say, oh gosh, you made a New Year's resolution, and so many of you statistically have broken that New Year's resolution already. By the way, I saw somebody post on social media, they said, uh, I've, I've changed the way that I make New Year's resolutions, and now I always keep every New Year's resolution that I make because my resolution is I'm not going to make a New Year's resolution. So I'm, I kept it, you know. Yeah, all right. If we don't keep our New Year's <laughs> resolution, why is that? Here's, here's why I would say it is, because it's a work of you, right? Typically, our New Year's resolutions depend on us, on us doing good and on us trying harder. And, 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 and this is why we're not successful so often in our New Year's resolutions, and it's certainly why those that would define repentance this way are equally not as successful, See, because biblical repentance has to be something more than just having it in your mind to change direction. Here's the key. The key to repentance isn't so much what we turn from, it is who we turn to. That's the key to repentance. And so you see in our text, what is is John saying? He's, He's preaching this baptism of repentance, right, for the forgiveness of our sins, What we turn from, who we turn to. Look at what he says in the text there. We'll pick it up in context in verse 3. He, John the Baptist, went into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And so what he says there in verse 4 is that, look, prepare the way of the Lord. And again, it's not, that's, that's illustrating, it's not what we turn from, it's who we turn to, This baptism of repentance. Yes, change of mind resulting in a change of direction and the direction is preparing the way of the Lord. In other words, John's not saying pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get it right and start, you know, no, he's saying truly repent, change your mind and turn to the Lord, prepare the way of the Lord. You know, it's it's not a New Year's resolution type of mindset where you're white knuckling this spiritual change. It's about turning to Jesus Christ. And so he's preaching this baptism of repentance. And and Paul gives us this clarification of John's baptism through a little account that takes place in Acts chapter 19. And Paul's talking to some disciples that he runs into, I think they're from Ephesus, and he's talking to them and and basically subject turns to baptism and and he's inquiring about the status of their baptism and they say that they had experienced the baptism of John. And so what what Paul begins, or rather, yeah, Paul, what he begins to explain to them is that John's baptism looked forward in faith to the coming Messiah. And and this is interesting. It's it's a little bit different reference point than the baptism that we know and understand. As Christians, we we partake of and participate in baptism. You might recall that Peter, in Acts chapter 2, uh, on the day of Pentecost, he, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and Peter goes out and begins to preach and at the conclusion of his message, he, his message is, repent and be baptized, everyone, in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, what Peter is preaching is a baptism that looks back to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. All of us have sinned by nature and by choice. Jesus Christ came as God in the flesh. He gave his life, the Bible says, as a ransom for many. He paid the penalty for your sin, dying on the cross, (coughs) died, was buried. He rose again from the dead on the third day in fulfillment of the scriptures. And the Bible says if we place our faith in him that we also will be forgiven. So the baptism (coughs) that the disciples preached and that has been a part of the church for 2,000 years... Is a baptism that looks back to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And when we are immersed, when we are baptized, we go under the water, symbolic of Jesus' death. We come out of the water, symbolic of his resurrection from the dead. And when we are baptized, we're identifying with that. We're saying to all the world, just as Jesus died and rose again, I, by faith in Jesus Christ, have died and risen again. Now, both of these baptisms essentially are the same thing, but they're just looking at it from different reference points. John's message here is saying the Messiah is coming, and so you must be baptized for the remission of sins, looking forward in anticipation to the coming Messiah. Peter and those that would follow in our church says, hey, listen, we're looking back to Jesus' completed work. By the way, If you have not been baptized as a believer of Jesus Christ, we would encourage you that you need to be baptized. It's an act of obedience, an outward sign of an inward change, and it's one of the two sacraments that God has instituted for us as believers that we should do, not to earn our salvation, but just to live out our faith and continually to proclaim Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection until he comes. The one sacrament that we do is partaking of communion. Jesus said, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim my death until until I come. And so this is is symbolic of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, same as your baptism. So if you haven't been baptized, we'd encourage you to do that. Our next baptism is coming up in a couple of months. We're actually going to do it on Easter Sunday. And so we would encourage you that you need to be obedient to the Lord, sign up uh, to be baptized. And so this is the substance of, of the message that John preached. He's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness uh, of sins, to to turn and look in faith to the coming of the Messiah. Again, that's the substance of his message. I want you now to notice the style of John's message. We pick it up in verse 7, and it says, Then he, John the Baptist, said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John had a, a real gentle, approachable style, really seeker-sensitive kind of church here, you know, hey, God wants you to be wealthy and, and you know, have three Cadillacs, and, you know, and, and so that, that's, his, that's his message, you know, hey, your best life now, come on, and it's all going to be great, and no, that is not his message, John's message is a little bit more in your faith. He's not preaching cotton candy. It's not health and wealth and prosperity. No, John goes out, and he punches his listeners right in the mouth. He just punches them right in the gut. He's like, boom, here you, you know, let me, let me just tell you what the reality is. You're evil as snakes. You are facing a coming wrath. You're facing the fire of God's judgment, and the people eat it up. That's what's amazing to me. Why is it that they eat it up? Because the world is hungry for the truth. That's why. And it's true, you can't handle the truth. Sometimes people can't. But the world is hungry for the truth. I'll illustrate it this way. You know, uh, last year Brenda got on a kick that, oh gosh, we you know we need to go to the doctor and get you know the, the fifty thousand mile checkup. We you know we're not as young as we used to be, and so she, and I I just hate going to the doctor. I am just not a good patient. I don't like that. It's a waste of time. I got stuff to do, but I am like, all right. So we go to all these different doctors just to just to get all of the stuff that you get, you know, and uh, and I am like, you know talking to everybody, and I got to get, you know, this endoscopy, are you kidding me, and all of that stuff, but all right, fine, I'll put up with it. Well, Brenda, as kind of as an afterthought, she says, and while we're at it, let's make an appointment with the dermatologist, and let's get our skin checked, to make sure we don't have skin cancer, I'm like, yeah, whatever, so we go in, and I'm good, you know, he he looks me up, and he's like, yeah, you're fine. And then he's checking Brenda out, and he says, "Uh, you know what, you got a spot uh, on your leg, and I don't like it, and I want to take a biopsy of it. And Brenda's, she's like, no, 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 wait, no, we're just just here for the checkup. (laughs) You know, in her mind, she just thought, oh, we'll just get the clean bill of health, get the check off, and everything will be good. She's never imagining they're going to find anything. She's like, no, I'm just here for the checkup. The guy's like, well, I'm going to biopsy it. And he biopsies it, and the biopsy comes back, and he says, you've got melanoma. Now, that changes things in a hurry, right? What did this doctor do? He didn't just satisfy us and say, you know, that's fine. You just want to check up? You want a clean bill of health? Eh, you're good. Looks good for my house, you know, kind of attitude. No, he says, I'm going to tell you the truth. And, 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 and we were so grateful for the truth, because yeah, the treatment was was pretty hideous, and they had to cut away and do a skin graft and all of this stuff. But we're so grateful for somebody that would tell us the truth. And here's our point of application for you. you know, one of our values here as a church is missional living. We articulate that value this way: we say that we live out a genuine faith, and we intentionally share that faith with others. Why is this our value? Well, Jesus said this in Matthew's gospel. He said, you are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And I want you to notice in these verses, Jesus, Jesus never said that we're to become Salt and light. He simply said that we are salt and light. And this is simultaneously the greatest compliment that you and I will ever receive, and it's the greatest responsibility. Certainly, it's the greatest compliment because Jesus himself claimed that title, the title of the light of the world. This is a title he carried upon himself as he walked on this earth. John chapter 8, verse 12 tells us, and Jesus spoke to his disciples, to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And so his conference of his own title upon us is a great compliment. But at the same time, it's a great responsibility for the same reason, that this was his title and he's just conferred this title upon us. In other words, it implies that you and I are acting as his ambassadors, now, the dictionary defines an ambassador this way. It says that it is an ambassador is an official envoy, the resident representative of a kingdom. In other words, because you are the resident representative of Jesus Christ on this earth, then you have to be his representative, not your representative. In other words, you can't unilaterally implement your own policies and procedures. Or if I can state it in a way that, that, that completely links in and connects with, with what John is doing here, you can't tell people what they want to hear. You have to tell people what they need to hear. That's who we are as Christians. We are resident representatives of Jesus. Paul told the Ephesians, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. And that means that you have a duty. It means that you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, have a responsibility. And Jesus makes this duty clear in, Matthew, or in Mark chapter 16. He says, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. We have that duty. We have that responsibility. We can't tell people what they want to hear. We have to tell them what they need to hear. And here's the thing. When you talk about sharing your faith, this freaks people out. We're, we're, we're afraid, we're intimidated to share our faith. What if they ask me something that I can't answer? What, what if I make them mad? What if I lose my friendship with this person? Well, let's see. You can either lose your, risk losing your friendship with that person, or you can love them straight into hell by not telling them the bad news. And so John, he just punts them right in the throat, man. He's like, you're a brood of vipers. And there's a judgment that's coming. And you all better wake up. you got to change the way you live. you got to turn, turn from your sin and you have to turn to the Savior. You guys are living a compartmentalized life and you think you're good and you're in yourself and all of this stuff and, and you need to wake up. Maybe some of you need to wake up today. Maybe you need to recognize that, that you or as a brood of viper, you know, what's the symbol of sin in the scriptures? It's, it's a snake. And we're all sinners by nature and by choice, and there is a coming judgment. God's wrath is coming upon this earth. We need to get serious and understand who Jesus is and, and what he's done. And repentance revol- involves both belief and our behavior. And so, the people respond. This is an incredible thing. John's preaching this message. He loves them enough to tell them the truth. And the people, now, they, they respond to it. Uh, verse 10, as, as John goes on, he, he says... Um, Well, let me finish verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers who warned you to to flee from the wrath that comes. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. In other words, what he's saying is, look, you guys are all, you know, Abraham's got his own relationship with God. Abraham, by faith, has a relationship with God, and he will stand before the Lord based on his faith. But you're not going to be able to stand before the Lord based on Abraham's performance. And this is what the Jews did. They said, oh, we have Abraham as our father. And John says, yeah, but you're going to stand before the Lord, just you and him, not you and Abraham. Abraham's not your proxy. Abraham's not your surrogate, oh, he got it right, so I get his fruit credited to my account. He's like, no, no, you, you can't claim that. It's going to be you know, up to you and, and, and how you live your life and what your faith is. And he says, for I say to you that God's able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, and even now, he warns, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so he loves them enough to tell them this truth. And so now, watch how the people respond. Verse 10, so the people asked him saying, what shall we do then? Such a beautiful response. Clearly, the message hits home and it provokes a response in their hearts, what should we do? Same response that Peter experienced on the day of Pentecost. Preaches a message, basically boldly stands up before all the Jews that are gathered on the day of Pentecost and tells them all, you crucified Jesus. All y'all did it. Y'all cried out for Barabbas and said, you know, that Jesus should be crucified. and, And, you know, they were cut to the heart. And their response was, what shall we do to be saved? Now, Stephen, by the way, preached a message later on in the book of Acts. And he was just equally as bold. And the people there were cut to the heart. But they didn't respond by saying, what should we do to be saved? They picked up rocks and stoned him to death, right? So, so you know, <laughs> there's that. You're like, you're not helping me be, you know, evangelistic, Pastor Ted. Sometimes the message you received, receive, sometimes it's not your duty, your responsibility is to preach the message. And so, you know, here, <clears throat> John the Baptist is preaching this message. People respond, what shall we do? Notice his answer. He says in verse 11, he answered and said to them, he... Who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. In other words, your faith ought to work itself out. James talked about this. Faith without works is dead. You see your brother is cold and he's hungry and you say, hey, you know, God bless you. Be warm and filled. And you don't do anything and he asks the question, how can that be faith? How can you have the faith of God in you if you're going to turn a blind eye to people who are of needs? What he's saying is, if you have a true faith, it's going to change your behavior. You're going to have turned from your sin. You're going to be turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's going to make you a new creation, and you are going to be changed, and he's going to change you from the inside out. And so this is what uh, John the Baptist is now saying. He's saying, look, this is what true repentance looks like. What do you you want to do? If you got a coat and somebody hasn't got one, give them one of your coats. Somebody needs food, you give them food. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized, and he said, then they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Because tax collectors were, were renowned for gouging people and charging, a, you 10%. They'd charge you 20. They'd pocket 10, and they'd give 10 to Rome. So he says, you know, don't do that. Just take what, what you're supposed to do. Likewise, so the soldiers asked him, saying, and what shall we do? <clears throat> and he said to them, do not uh, intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be uh, content with your wages. People respond. And what John is saying here, that true repentance just changes how you live. When you turn from your sin, when you turn to your Savior, this is what true repentance Looks like it involves your belief and your behavior, and your behavior is an indication of what you believe. Verse 15 now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, in other words, what verse 15 is saying is that this is a day and age when everybody was looking for the Messiah, and they're all asking the question, Is John this guy? And we're waiting for him, we're all expectantly waiting for the Messiah. Maybe it's John. So as they're doing this, verse 16, John answers, he said to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. What John is saying is that beyond the baptism that he preached, the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and by the way, beyond the baptism that we partake of, As believers now, looking forward in faith back to the work of Jesus Christ and identifying in that way, beyond that, what John is talking about here, he's talking about the baptism that Jesus Christ would bring. He's prophesying about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire. Listen, all four Gospels record John giving this prophecy, talking about this baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire. Now, the idea of being baptized is to be immersed or to be covered over. And and so just as John baptized and immersed the people covered over in water, uh, the people in his act of baptism, what, what he's saying is that the disciples will be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Jesus, by the way, prophesied this same thing in Acts chapter 1. He said to his disciples, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he's he's prophesying about that. And as well, what we see in Acts chapter 2, as the disciples on the day of Pentecost were baptized in the Holy Spirit, just as he prophesied here, Jesus is coming. This is going to go down. Just as they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they're also baptized in fire, that there's tongues of flames that were seen uh, upon the heads of each of these apostles who were baptized in the Holy Spirit. So Acts chapter 2 shows us the fulfillment in part of what John is prophesying to, uh, or what's being prophesied here uh, that John is saying now this baptism of the fire and baptism of the Holy Spirit, but there's another side to what John is saying here. There's another side to this prophecy. See, on the one hand, God promises, the Bible makes it clear, that there will be a baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, and of power to all who repent and believe. But listen, if you reject Jesus, and as John says that here, there's one mightier coming than I, Whose strap I'm not worthy to loose, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's the good news. And fire, that could be the bad news if you reject Jesus Christ. Because the Bible promises that for those who reject Jesus Christ, there will be a baptism of fire. And it's a fiery judgment that it's talking about. Maybe you were with us when we went through the book of Revelation. I'll put it up on the screen for you. But Revelation chapter 20 talks about the fire of God's judgment that's coming. John says this he says then i saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them no place to run no place to hide where are they going to be where are they going to be put verse 12 and i saw the dead small and great standing before god and books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. When the Bible repeats itself, we have to take note of what's being emphasized here. You don't want to be judged according to your works. Let me come right back to that. And then verse 14, uh, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The second death. There is Everybody's born physically, and everybody will die physically. Ain't None of you getting out alive, right? The statistics are overwhelming. One out of every one person dies, all right? So you ain't getting out alive. You will die a physical death. But the question remains, what's going to happen to you spiritually? Because you're both physical and you're spiritual. And so if you are born again by the Spirit of God, by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, you will not die the second death. But if you don't place your faith in Jesus Christ, then there will be a second death. You see, what's going to happen, there there is one question on the entrance exam to heaven. What'd you do with Jesus? And I like to talk to people, and I'll ask them, and I'll say, hey, you know, what's your testimony? Or, you know, do you believe in God? Or do you believe in Jesus? And and I meet people who say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and I believe, you know, the Bible says about Jesus is true, and all that. And and that's cool, but I won't leave it there. I'll ask them a follow-up question. The follow-up question is, okay, so how do you know you're going to heaven? Now, I've had a lot of people who have told me, Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe everything the Bible says about Jesus. And so then I say, okay, so how do you know you're going to heaven? And their answer will then go to their works. They'll say, ah, I'm I'm basically a good person. You know, I haven't killed anybody and and all that. And so, you know, I'm basically a good person. And and some sort of a combination of, you know, I think my good works will outweigh my bad works. And, you know, God grades on a scale. And, you know, so I'll get in because I'm not Charles Manson or whatever. No, what that says is you're trusting in your works. And this text makes it clear, your works ain't getting you in. You want to be judged according to your works? Then you will experience the second death, spiritual death, and you'll spend eternity in a lake of fire. Now, that's God's words. That's not mine. And so so this is a, a, a very sobering thing. And what John is making clear here is that, listen, judgment is coming. The wrath of God is coming. And you got to decide where you're going to be. And this, this is his message. If you look, redirect back to verse 8. He says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Don't begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And what did he say before that? He says, look, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath To come. See, here's the thing that we know deep down. We know deep down, wrath is coming. The wrath of God is coming upon this world. And and, I don't know, maybe you heard the news story yesterday about the ballistic missile text that went out in Hawaii. And, and, And all people that were in Hawaii, they all got on their cell phones, a ballistic missile has just been fired, go find immediate shelter, this is not a drill. And then about a half hour later, the clarification went out. Oh, that, by the way, that, that, that was a mistake. But for a half hour, people thought that you know, North Korea was, was bombing with, with their missiles, Hawaii. Well, here's what John's saying. John says, look, there's a ballistic missile coming, and this, is, this truly is not a drill. And, and fundamentally, you know what? We know that. Deep down, the world senses that wrath is coming. The world knows it. Wrath is coming. The Holy Spirit may be this morning speaking to your heart, just telling you, look, the wrath of God is a real thing. And the question today is the question that John puts out, are we bearing fruit that's worthy of repentance? Look, Abraham had his own faith. God is able to raise up sons of Abraham from the rocks. The question comes down to you is, where is your faith? Where have you placed your hope? Jesus said this. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, Jesus said, will come to me, say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, Jesus says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so I submit to you today, this morning, as we close, the same message that John the Baptist preaches to his people. We are all a brood of vipers. We We are sinners by nature and by choice. And the wrath of God is coming. And we have to take a good, long, hard look in the mirror. And we have to say, am I truly repentant? Have I made that decision to repent, to turn? And having turned, who is it that I'm looking to for my salvation?